0: To reader Scott's Playbook. All material heard on Iris is intended for the use of listeners with print disabilities. Here's our first story from the February 23rd edition of the Business Record. It's entitled Addressing Racial Disparities Directors Council's First Executive Director Shares Goals. It's written by Emily Barsky Wood. Data in the 2021 Economy Report tells a story about the, the disparities black residents in Polk County face. For example, in 2019, Des Moines was named the 10th best city for business and careers. However, there were only 36 black owned small businesses in Polk County that were registered with the Iowa Economic Development Authority at the time. Since the organization formed in 2004, the Director's Council has advocated for addressing barriers that lead to such disparities. Among its initiatives, the organization hosts the African American Leadership Academy and the One Economy Reports. Until July of last year, the organization was entirely led by volunteers, all of whom were equally successful and busy Black CEOs and executive directors. In the summer, the organization brought on Jerrica Marshall to serve as its first executive director to continue the work on a day-to-day basis. We recently caught up with Marshall to learn more about her and the goals she has for the Director's Council. Tell me about your relationship with the Director's Council before you were named Executive Director. I actually was an African American Leadership Academy graduate. I was on the committee for the Black Urban Professionals, the networking group. I was kind of intertwined in quite a few of their different initiatives in different ways. When you came on as the executive director after the nonprofit had previously been run solely by volunteers, what changed with the organization? This year the 20th is the 20th anniversary for the directors council, so we're excited about what this year will bring. But it's totally different. We were completely board run before in a volunteer capacity. Everybody on my board is an executive director or CEO of another organization, which of course requires their focus. Now there's someone dedicated to this work day to day, pushing the needle forward and making sure that this work is able to continue at a pace that everybody loves. It's time for us to come up with a new version of the One Economy Report, so we're really laser focused on making on that and making sure that we have updates to that this year. How would you summarize what the Director's Council does and why the business community should care? The Director's Council is focused on making sure that the same experience that the majority are receiving in Des Moines, that Black Polk County will receive the same. We're focused on health, housing, education, employment, and financial inclusivity. We want to make sure that there's not a gap. Our role is to make sure that we find some real solutions so everybody can enjoy Des Moines the same way. Since joining the organization, what have been some of your biggest goals and areas of focus? It's the One Economy Report at this point. The City of Des Moines has been great at adapting this report. It's utilized everywhere. We want other nonprofits and organizations to use this report so that they can continue to do the hands-on work. We know that we're not direct service-driven. We're working on systemic issues And that's where our new goal and our new direction is going. But this allows us to still support the other nonprofit organizations that are doing the direct service work that we need here. The last time the One Economy Report, which was the blueprint for action, came out was in 2020. Now we're ready for the new version in 2024 so we can really see where we've made progress. Especially during the pandemic, some things have slipped and we need to make sure that we're putting focus on those items. There are definitely some other pieces that we're continuing to work on. Next year, we're hoping to have a new version of our report on future leaders for public service. It shows where there are upcoming needs in elections so we can get people of color involved in public service. What does creating the new One Economy Report entail? It's a big undertaking. We have to have data, a data research partner in this work. That's the biggest thing. We're in the process right now of solidifying who our data research partner will be because we want it to be more evergreen. We want to support some of the other disparity reports that are out there so that they're modeling some of the work that we want to do. We want our website to be evergreen and to show that data regularly so people could go and check it out, check on it whenever they need to. You mentioned that some areas of focus might have slipped with the pandemic specifically. What are some of those? It's hard to say. I think the data will really speak for itself, and then it will narrate the picture for me. But what I can say is that we weren't able to do direct service the way that people would like to, and a lot of times there's a trust factor missing. When we're talking about financial services, there was a lack of trust, according to what we were seeing in the data, and years of history with that. Having so much being done remotely meant not being able to be hands-on with the community. That affects not being able to have schools open. That's going to adjust how we see data before. We know that there are going to naturally be some setbacks because of the pandemic, but the question is, how do we bounce back? Tell me a little bit about the interaction with direct service providers. It's the convening of folks I think for us, it's just me being out in the community and meeting with the leaders from other organizations because I'm only as useful as the things that I know about. I need to be meeting with all these different organizations so I know what their services are. Because of the One Economy report, other organizations reach out to us and say, Hey, who can I reach out to for this? Or is it something that the direct counsel can do? Maybe it's not where we're going as an organization but I know where I can send you. I know who has that resource. Our goal is not to double dip in what other people are doing. It's to make sure that we're helping and being a real resource for our community. What were some of the things that specifically drew you to the role? It was the opportunity to continue to do work that impacts my community day to day. In other roles, I found ways to make sure that I was still working with my community. When I worked at Wells Fargo, I was a part of their affinity groups and on the philanthropic side, making sure that we were providing funds and resources to the community. At the Greater Des Moines Partnership, I started off providing, uh, excuse me, I started off working on their events team and was an assistant with the farmer's market. I looked at the farmer's market and said, this doesn't match the community as a whole. The vendors that we're seeing here aren't mirroring our community. We partnered with organizations like Ladylike and started its incubator program to offer more vendor booths for small, black women-owned businesses to be at the market. I always found ways to try to work with and for my community. Are you still involved with the African American Leadership Academy? I still sit in on all sessions because I think as a leader, you can never have too much education or time to pour into your leadership skills. And that's what they're learning in the classes. It's never a bad time to brush up. I meet with the cohort once a month. Lead Des Moines is also located in the C3 Center, so we collaborate in that space too. What do you want the business community to know about the issues that you focus on and how they can help? I know that the One Economy Reports came out in 2020 and 2017, and we've seen some progress, but there's still work to be done. We need more people to get behind this work and to help us push it forward. It is not an easy endeavor to get this report out, so we need the support of our community to be able to do that. We want to make sure that as we're making these changes and as we're getting this 2024 One Economy report out, that we're having community conversations. I don't want our health professionals and our high-level educators to be who tells the story of the community needs. We need the community to tell us what they need as well. We need those real stories. We want the business community to know we still need you. We need your help. We need you to show up to these community conversations so we can make sure that when the report comes out, it is a true reflection of what the community is asking for. Once we establish this full report, then we need to go to our public services and say, this is what we need. These are the changes that we need to see, or this is the bill that's on the table, and we need you to understand how this affects the community. This is where we also need the business community to step up and show up for this work and say, we also see that the changes need to be made, and we're going to help you move this work forward. What do you think the Des Moines community can do to empower more of the Black community to become the next leaders in our companies? I think that we do need to see more black and brown leaders in the Des Moines community. It's just a fact. We can see the data points and we can see that the need is there. But once the leaders are here, we have to make them feel like we want them to be a part of the community. This is where everybody can come in. We have to make them feel like Des Moines is where their new home is. We need to make sure that they feel welcomed and that we can root them here so that way we keep these leaders. It's kind of, it kind of seems like what's happening is that they come in and then we lose them one way or another. The secondary piece is that we need to have more than a couple people in the room. Oftentimes we find the same people in the room and we're not getting new opinions and new feelings and new thoughts. We have to encourage new thought leaders and embrace them. That's what I would like to see, not just diversity in that sense, but getting new thinkers in the room. I think that level of diversity is needed too. What does it look like for people to come to the community and feel welcomed to you? I can use an example we just did this year. Dr. Ian Roberts, our new Des Moines Public Schools Superintendent. We were so excited to have him here. Ms. Taree Caldwell-Johnson is board chair for the Director's Council, but she's also a member of the school board. She told us about it and let us know that he would be coming. We were so excited about what that meant for our students, not just our black and brown students, but especially those students, to have that example in the schools to show every day what that could look like for them as a leader. To have that example is so important for our children, especially our black boys. When we saw that he was coming in, we said, we need to make sure he has roots here. We had a joint venture with the Des Moines NAACP, And we had a welcome reception for him. We invited the school board. We invited members of the school district. Also our community leaders, our NAAC president, our nonprofit organization leaders, the ones that especially deal with our youths. So that way, when he comes in, he comes in with an arsenal of resources. He knows who to reach out to if he needs something. It's not about us. It's about the kids and making sure that they're getting the leaders that they want and to help them excel the best way they can. That's what welcoming looks like. Helping them find the resources. Helping them find the people that can root them in our community. Helping them believe in Des Moines and know that they're not in this fight on their own. They have backing from the moment they step into this place. If you had to narrow it down to one thing, what's one wish that you have for the community? So often we hear about the state uh, stats of Des Moines, the number one city for this. We have a section of the One Economy Report that's called The Tale of Two Cities that shows the disparities. I want the city accolades that we have to be true for all. That's my wish, is that everybody has the same experience in the city. I love Des Moines. I'm not from here. I'm from Rockford, Illinois, originally. Then I was in Waterloo for most of my adulthood and then moved to Des Moines about eight years ago, but it has become home for me. I love it here. I have my favorite places to go. I have recommendations for days. I try to tell everybody about the wonderful love of Des Moines, but that's not everybody's experience, and so that's my wish, is that everybody has that same experience. How would you describe your leadership style? My leadership style is community-based. I like to network and connect with others. I think that has propelled me throughout my career. A lot of my ability to be successful in professional spaces is because of who you know, and it's not in the sense of who you know that can take you places. But who you know that's doing the work, who you know can show up and get things done, who you know that is successful. It's so funny because I'm a little bit shy, but when it comes to things that I'm passionate about, Sometimes people will be surprised by how much I know or what I can connect, even though I may be the quietest one in the room. What is something that not a lot of people know about you? Probably that I'm the shyest. I'm a little bit of an introvert. Sometimes I may be the quietest person in the room, but it's because I'm thinking about something. I'm trying to put some dots together and I'm mapping out a plan B. What do you enjoy doing outside of work? If it's not work, then it's something else that still works with my community. Right now, the passion project outside of work is with Ladylike, a group that connects Black and African women in the greater Des Moines area. I'm on their board, which is how we initially were able to move forward with some of that stuff for the farmer's market. We have the annual summit every year where we're able to bring together Black women to just be replenished and refilled in their community. We are highlighting small, black women-owned businesses throughout the day. We bring in speakers to talk about different topics. A lot of what I'm doing is the background and the production part for the Ladylike conference. I am also incredibly addicted to reality TV. I'm a DIY crafter. Me and my cricket are best friends. So if if you ever get a gift from me, I'm sure I made it. I do charcuterie board classes with my friends. I teach them classes. What's a recent DIY project that you did? My girlfriend just got married. I made these welcome sign boxes with flowers. I'm also kind of addicted to my cricket. So if I see something new, I'm going to try to make it. And at a glance, she's 34 years old, grew up in Rockford, Illinois, and started adult years in Waterloo. She has grandparents, aunts, and uncles in Waterloo. Her parents are in Rockford, Illinois, and a little brother in Des Moines. She has a bachelor's degree from Upper Iowa University. And she's a board member for Ladylike Des Moines, an avid reality TV watcher, and a DIY crafter. Our next article is entitled, "High V's Exemplar Care Deal aims to increase access, drive down costs with direct care models. The merger expands the Midwest grocery chain into subscription primary care service. It's written by Kyle Haima. Hive Inc.'s merger with Exemplar Care Medical Clinics completed in January will be an entry point for the West Des Moines based grocery store into subscription based primary and urgent care health clinics. For Hy-Vee, the agreement allows it to continue to expand its footprint in the healthcare industry through joint ownership of medical clinic company Exemplar Care, whose headquarters are in Des Moines. The, crew, the new partnership opens the door for Hy-Vee into primary and urgent care with a model that focuses on personalized care and aims to increase access while also driving down costs for patients, Dr. Daniel Thick, Hy-Vee Chief Medical Officer, said. According to the Exemplar Care website, the membership cost for adults nineteen and older is eighty nine dollars per month but seventy five dollars for people aged sixty five and older with Medicare, sixty nine dollars per month for spouses, twenty nine dollars per month for children and dependents up to age twenty six, and two hundred and sixteen dollars for a family consisting of two adults and two or more children/slash dependents. The model for this type of primary care is a direct primary care model. So that is, you pay a membership fee every month, and that entitles you to use the clinic as often as you'd like, Fick said. You have a provider, and you can see them as much or as little as you need. It's not based on your health insurance. Many people have it in addition to their health insurance. It allows you to come in and be seen without all the complications of insurance. As part of the agreement, Exemplar Care Medical Clinics will be renamed High V Health Exemplar Care, offering direct primary care and 24/7 urgent care where available. Fick said the chain, change in the name will take effect in the coming months. Fick and Exemplar Care's leadership team, including founder and physician John Vanderveer, will manage the clinics. In addition to the membership with High V Health Exemplar Care, we also have urgent care, Fix said. Our members can use the urgent care visit for free. So in addition, 24-7, as much as you need to come in for an urgent care issue, you can come in there. We do procedures, we have an x-ray machine, we can do lab work, and that's all free for the membership. And the good news is from the urgent care side, that particular part of it, You can also use insurance if you're not a member, but you need to use the urgent care. Exemplar Care's two clinics are located in West Des Moines and Ankeny, with a third ready-to-debut in Bondurant. Hy-Vee has more than 285 locations across eight Midwestern states, Iowa, Illinois, Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. We actually received keys today for the Bondurant site, so in a week or so, it should be up and running, Vanderveer said February the 12th. Less than a month after reaching the agreement with Hy-Vee, Vanderveer said he was in Omaha exploring potential sites for more clinics. One of the most exciting things from the exemplar care side and going into this partnership was being able to grow our footprint with our model of care, which is focused on price transparency, affordability, access, and convenience, Van Der Beer said. "HiV being in a much larger geography gives us an opportunity to grow into that footprint and bring our model into those markets, he said. Some of the markets already have similar type things, but we just do things a little bit differently. Van der Veer said initially that they're looking at potential sites in Kansas City, Omaha, and a couple of other spots in Iowa just in the general high V footprint. Existing retailers establishing and expanding their presence in healthcare industry markets is a growing trend. Federal Bureau of Economic Analysis data released in September of 2023 showed that healthcare spending in the U.S. rose in 2022 to more than $4.3 trillion dollars. Within the last two years, CVS acquired Oak Street Health, a senior care primary care provider, and health tech company Signify Health in deals totaling nearly $19 billion, according to CVS Health News releases. The Associated Press reported in February 2023 that Amazon closed on a $3.9 billion buyout of primary care startup One Medical, and Walgreens Village M.D., Announced in January 2023 that it completed its sale of Summit Health City MD for $8.9 billion. Hy-V's presence in the healthcare industry spans more than 50 years, according to the company's website. The retailer operates in more than 275 pharmacies across the Midwest. It formed its own pharmacy benefit manager, Vivid Clear RX. In an attempt to combat rising drug prices in 2020, and started a low cost telehealth and online pharmacy provider called Redbox RX. Just like many places, I think you're going to see continuing consolidation of healthcare into smaller groups, smaller numbers, but part of much larger groups, Fix said. I think you'll see independent primary care probably moving to the way of more ownership of larger systems and larger groups. I think Iowa in general, like much of rural America, continues to have challenges in both primary care and specialist recruitment. The grocery store chain also opened Hy-Vee Health Infusion Care Centers last year in West Des Moines and Chicago to provide infusion therapy to patients with chronic conditions. According to Fick, access is a key component to Hy-Vee's health care strategy. Physicians tend to migrate to where the population is, so it's always a challenge in rural America to recruit and retain medical providers, including physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and physicians and surgeons, Fick said. It's probably the biggest challenge we have. We, in rural America, provide great health care, great personal care. It's just a challenge to sometimes fill those spots and locations. Now we come to an article entitled Valair Ballroom in West Des Moines reopens on Sunday. Nearly $15 million in renovations completed at Historic Venue. This is written by Kathy A. Bolton. Sam Summers is returning to his local music promotion roots. On Sunday, Summers will reopen the historic Valair Ballroom in West Des Moines with a special sneak peek event. On February 29th, the band Green Sky Bluegrass will headline the first concert at the venue since the completion of its nearly $15 million historical renovation. I used to book shows at the Val Air when I was in college, said Summers, owner of First Fleet Concerts, a promotion company he started in the mid-2000s while attending Iowa State University. Those shows are what launched me into my full-time business. The Val Air is a pretty special place to me. Summers acquired the Val Air in January 2022, paying $1.9 million for the eight-and-a-half-acre parcel at 301 Ashworth Road in West Des Moines. He closed the venue in late 2022 for renovations. The ballroom, which has operated for nearly 85 years, was built in three phases. The venue's foundation was constructed around 1921 and originally was intended to be the floor of a multi-level factory building according to an application to the National Register of Historic Places. The factory was not built for financial reasons. In 1939, Thomas Archer acquired the property and built a partially covered ballroom on top of the abandoned factory foundation, according to the application, which was completed by local architectural historian Alexa McDowell. The covered portion of the facility included a hardwood maple dance floor, a stage, a coat check room, bars, and restrooms. The open-air portion of the ballroom had a polished concrete dance floor. Archer also owned and operated the Tr- Tromar Ballroom, a fully enclosed venue in downtown Des Moines. The Air was a seasonal ballroom, operating only in the warm weather months. Ballrooms were prolific across the country and in Iowa during a time when there wasn't TV and social media, McDowell said. Ballrooms were a place for people to come and gather. It's how they learned about popular music. It's how they socialized. By the mid-1950s, interest in ballrooms began to wane, McDowell said. Movie theaters were gaining in popularity. So were roller skating and bowling. Around 1955, Archer enclosed the Valair and converted the Tromar to an indoor roller skating rink. Des Moines' only other ballroom at the time was the Riviera at Riverview Park in North Des Moines. Both the Tromar and Riviera were destroyed in fires, the Tromar in 1963, the Riviera in 1980. Communities started losing interest in these venues, and a lot of them went away, McDowell said. Over the years, ballrooms have been converted to other uses, such as wedding venues and event centers. The Valair, whose interior was redone in 1961 after a fire was for sale for over six years before Summers acquired it, Restoration of the historic structure required patience and perseverance, he said. The Valair, which was placed on the National Register of Historic Places in the fall of 2022, received a $3.2 million in historic tax credits from the state of Iowa and up to $1.18 million in property tax rebates from the city of West Des Moines. The project also received $1 million from Destination Iowa funds. If you don't have those funding streams, the project doesn't pencil out financially, said Summers, a co-owner of Woolies, a live music venue and UpDown, an arcade bar, both in Des Moines' East Village. Summers is also the founder of Hinterland Music Festival in St. Charles. The cheaper option would have been to tear it down and build something else. I'm not saying it would have wound up on the chopping block, because it's a pretty important building. But somebody needed to step up and I was ready to do it. The building was in dire need of repairs, particularly the roof, which originally was tin, Summers said. A thin, deteriorated layer of insulation was between the ceiling and roof. What was here before actually wasn't rated high enough for a heavy snow, Summers said. The roof also didn't keep loud music inside the venue. Between the Valair's new roof and ceiling layers of a rock-like material and dense insulation were installed. The materials keep loud music inside the venue, but also help keep it cool during Iowa's hot and humid summer months, Summers said. Because it got so hot in here, the former owners would open the doors and the sound would get out and disturb the surrounding neighbors, Summers said. Other improvements include upgrades to the heating and cooling systems and sound system. A new four-foot, six-inch stage was added on the west side of the venue. The roof over the original stage was removed, and a box-like structure installed above the stage, providing more room to hang speakers, lights, and other equipment. Also, the ballroom's original 72-foot by 140-foot maple dance floor was refurbished. Some of the venue's original light fixtures were cleaned and fitted with LED lighting. Restrooms were expanded and new carpet installed. Walls were painted a mint green, a color that had been used in the Valair's early days. Light pink formica countertops in the bar and concession areas. We found some green paint when stripping the walls, so we decided to go with the green palette. Summers said. Summers hopes to host at least 100 events a year at the Valair, which holds up to 2,500 guests. To date, 27 concerts have been booked. The venue can be rented for such things as weddings, high school dances, and other events, he said. Once the Val Air is operating smoothly, Summers will focus on completing improvements to the venue's lower level that is being converted to a restaurant and bar. There used to be just dirt and standing water down here, Summers said. Concrete flooring has been added to areas that were just dirt. An entrance has been added for people with disabilities. Plumbing has been installed for an L-shaped bar and full kitchen. Electrical wiring has also been installed. Back in the day, this used to be a speakeasy, Summers said. According to the application to the National Register of Historic Places, an injunction was filed in the mid-1940s against Archer and his company for the illegal sale of intoxicating liquor in a place known as Club 100 that was in the building's lower level. We're not going to call it a speakeasy, But it will be that vibe, said Summers, who estimated the restaurant and bar could open by late fall. You're listening to this week's edition of The Business Record. Our thanks to the folks at Business Publications for providing a copy of The Business Record to Iris so that we can read it for you. If you have any comments on this or any other Iris program, give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now back to The Business Record. DMU President and CEO receives Distinguished Alumni Award. Des Moines University President and CEO Angela L. Walker Franklin received the Carl F. Court Distinguished Alumni Award from her undergraduate alma mater, Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. The Court Award is presented in recognition of significant professional or personal accomplishments and for continued loyalty to Furman University. Franklin, who became Des Moines University's 15th president in 2011, was honored for nearly four decades of work in higher education and for accomplishments such as the university's move to a new campus in West Des Moines and the Purple and Proud Campaign which has raised more than $51 million. Next, 2024 40 Under 40 Alum of the Year, Mary Sellers. The Business Record is proud to announce Mary Sellers as the 2024 40 Under 40 Alum of the Year. Sellers serves as president of the United Way of Central Iowa. She was a member of the Business Record's 2001 40 Under 40 class as well as a 2014 Woman of Influence. This is Sellers' second stint leading the local arm of the United Way. She previously led the organization from 2012 to 2017 before she was recruited to lead as the United States President of United Way Worldwide. There, she led the U.S. network of 1,400 local United Ways, covering 85% of communities in the U.S., and she was responsible for $3.5 billion in fundraising revenue annually. Among the focuses of her leadership in the role, she established United Way's role as a partner in responding to communities in crisis following both man-made and natural disasters, resulting in raising over $100 million in its first year. She holds a bachelor's degree in public relations from the University of Florida, an MBA from the University of Iowa Tippie College of Business and has obtained executive education from Harvard University Graduate School of Business, among other education credit credentials. In 2019, she was named the University of Florida College of Journalism and Communications Hall of Fame. She has volunteered and been appointed to serve on numerous leadership committees throughout her career, including with Future Ready Iowa and the National Science Foundation, just to name a few. Greiner Construction promotes Des Moines-based Josh Miltenberg to COO. Greiner Construction, a full-service construction company with 110 employees across Des Moines and Minneapolis, has announced Josh Miltenberger as the company's new chief operating officer. Miltenberger, who formerly served as construction executive at Greiner, leads the company's Des Moines and Minneapolis operations. The announcement comes alongside other leadership changes at Griner, including the recent appointment of new CEO Josh Helgeson. With this transition, the Minneapolis-based company is now the largest minority-owned business in Minnesota. Josh Miltenberger has made a tremendous impact on our team and every project he's touched since joining Griner, leading with great integrity, Helgeson said in a prepared statement, He is a key driver of our culture of commitment, collaboration, and client satisfaction, and I can't wait to see where his leadership takes us next. Iowa Clinic opens South Waukee Clinic and Ambulatory Surgery Center. The Iowa Clinic hosted a ribbon-cutting Wednesday for its new 60,000-square-foot multi-specialty clinic and surgery center. The South Waukee Clinic and Ambulatory Surgery Center Located at 1025 Southeast Tallgrass Lane, is the Iowa Clinic's third location in Waukee. The new clinic will house an ambulatory surgery center with a cardiac catheterization laboratory where specialists from orthopedic foot and ankle, hand surgery, pain management, and cardiology will perform procedures. The cath lab is the first in Iowa that will be located in an ambulatory surgery center outside of a hospital. The South Waukee Clinic will also house urgent care, pediatrics, family medicine, physical therapy and more. UNI announces opportunities for students to complete graduate programs. The University of Northern Iowa has announced that it will waive recency requirements for students looking to complete their graduate degree within the next 24 months. This initiative allows UNI graduate students who earned credits towards an unfinished master's degree to pick up where they left off in their academic journey. In addition to the waiver, UNI announced a $500 scholarship for returning students who enroll in one or more credits, which aims to alleviate some of the financial burdens associated with resuming higher education. Our goal is to create a flexible, supportive environment for UNI students who wish to continue their work towards a master's or doctoral degree after a temporary break. We understand that life circumstances can change and we want to make it as easy as possible for students to re-engage with their studies, said Stephanie Huffman, Dean of the College of Graduate Research and Online Education. Next, we have an article entitled, Lead DSM is Accepting Nominations for the Next Greater Des Moines Leadership Institute Class. The Greater Des Moines Leadership Institute is accepting nominations for its 2024-2025 class. Participants will join a nine-month curriculum that prepares leaders from across Greater Des Moines to be stewards for the community's future Nominees who have demonstrated sufficient community leadership experience will be invited to submit a formal application for consideration. Participants will be selected in June. Nominations for the program will be accepted until 11.59 p.m. on March 11. Interested individuals are invited to learn more about the program at a virtual information session on Thursday, February 29, from noon to 1.30 p.m. Next up, registration now open for the 2024 Harkin Retirement Security Symposium. The Harkin Institute will host the 2024 Harkin Retirement Security Symposium on April the 30th at Drake University's Olmsted Center. One of the keynote speakers will be journalist Mark Miller, who is the author of Retirement Reboot, Common Sense Strategies for Getting Back on Track. The theme of this year's symposium is Navigating the Journey to Financial Wellness, where attendees will discuss the challenges of retirement financial security. The event will also be live-streamed for those who cannot attend in person. Now, here's the top 5 things to know. Number 1, 2023 Iowa Business Hall of Fame inductees announced. The Greater Des Moines Community, or excuse me, the Greater Des Moines Committee announced February 12th that it will recognize Ray Cole Robert J. Denson, and Roger C. Underwood as the 2023 inductees to the Iowa Business Hall of Fame. The Iowa Business Hall of Fame honors the achievements of Iowans who have made outstanding contributions to the development and enhancement of Iowa's business climate. Cole retired in 2023 from Citadel Communications after 48 years, including 38 years as President and Chief Operating Officer. Denson is the fourth and longest-serving president of Des Moines Area Community College. Underwood is an entrepreneur, investor, and philanthropist who founded Becker Underwood in 1982 in Ames. The inductees will be honored during the Greater Des Moines Committee's annual induction event on May 1st at the Meadows Events and Conference Center in Altoona. Number two. Site plans for two Microsoft data centers at Ginger East approved. Site plans for two new data centers at Microsoft Corp's Ginger East campus were approved by the West Des Moines Planning and Zoning Commission last week. The two 245,000 square foot structures will be the third and fourth data centers built on the 124 acre campus at 1475 Southeast Moffat Lake Road. The campus can hold five data centers. The city is allowing Microsoft to plant shrubs in landscape islands in the parking lot, rather than trees, a departure from standard requirements. A Microsoft representative previously had made the request citing security concerns. Trees will be planted in buffer areas surrounding the site, according to information provided by the commission members. Number three, Baker Group opens Kansas City office. Baker Group, an Ankeny-based design-build contractor, announced the opening of a new office in Kansas City, Missouri. The new location is Baker Group's first office outside of Iowa, bringing its total locations to five. The expansion aims to serve the growing industrial base in the region with a focus on industrial automation, according to a news release. Baker Group's industrial automation services include systems integration, supervisory control, and data acquisition and process control and instrumentation. Number four, funding recap, IEDA awards tax benefits $350,000 in innovation continuum loans in uh, fourth quarter. The Iowa Economic Development Authority Board awarded $350,000 in loans to Iowa startups and tax credits to four established companies during the fourth quarter of 2023. Startups can receive loans from IEDA through the agency's Innovation Continuum Funds as well as the State Small Business Credit Initiative. The companies that received funding from IEDA during the fourth quarter include FES Solutions Cedar Rapids, a $50,000 proof of commercial relevance loan, Ten Five Inc. Des Moines, a $50,000 proof of commercial relevance loan, and Hummingbirds Des Moines, a $250,000 Innovation Acceleration Launch Fund loan you can read the full list on uh, innovationia.com and number 5 Iowa leading indicators index contracts slightly contracts slightly again in december the Iowa leading indicators index decreased 0.1% to 105.1 in december from 105.2 in november During the six-month span through December, the ILII decreased 1.4% an annualized rate of negative 2.8%. The six-month diffusion index remains unchanged at 25.0 in December from November, a six-month annualized change in the index below 2%, and a six-month diffusion index below 50 are considered a signal of a coming contraction when seen together. The six-month diffusion index remained a in a contractionary signal for the 12th month in a row, and the six-month annualized change showed contraction for the 14th month in a row. Now we come to an article entitled, How Will Sale of Wells Fargo Properties at Discounted Prices Affect Other Office Properties? Threatened by Kathy A. Bolton. It will take several months, if not a few years, to understand the effects Wells Fargo's sale of Des Moines area properties at discounted prices will have on the office market and property valuations, real estate experts say. The two sales of office properties in the western suburbs could prompt other potential commercial office buyers to make offers that are below asking prices, prompting owners to reassess whether to sell properties, they said. It could also prompt property owners to request valuations be lowered, a move that would generate fewer property tax dollars for cities, counties, school districts, and other entities. I don't think it's going to have some kind of catastrophic doom and gloom on the market, said Alec Wilcox, a commercial real estate agent with Cushman and Wakefield, Iowa commercial advisors. There won't be a monumental shift in the market. In December, Wells Fargo sold properties at 77001 West Town Parkway and 1725 68th Street in West Des Moines and at 13733 University Avenue in Clive. WB Realty Company, a central Iowa commercial and residential brokerage firm, bought the West Des Moines properties for $16.5 million or $57.3 million less than the property's combined assessed value of $73.8 million. Heartland Co-op acquired the former Wells Fargo property in Clive, paying nearly $6.5 million for the property that is valued at $13.7 million. The sale of the properties occurred less than a year after Wells Fargo announced that it was relocating many of its Des Moines-area employees to its Jordan Creek campus in West Des Moines. The financial institution's home mortgage offices had been located on the Westtown Parkway and University Avenue properties. A spokesperson for Wells Fargo declined to comment about the property's sale prices. Brian Tack, Chief, Chief Deputy Assessor in Polk County, said it's too soon to know the impact the sales will have on valuations or other transactions involving office properties. In the past year, four Des Moines area office properties have been sold for between 70 and $16 per square foot, Tack said. That's a tremendous range. We are always trying to look for a pattern. We need to figure out which of those are outliers and whether there is something unique about the higher and lower sales. We just don't have enough information right now to make a determination. In March 2023, Wells Fargo listed four office buildings and a parking garage for sale. A company spokesperson declined to comment on whether the properties are listed at below market prices. Wilcox speculated that Wells Fargo downtown properties could be sold for below their value if a buyer plans on using the buildings for uses other than offices. If a buyer plans on redevelopment, they are going to have to put money into retrofitting a building, Wilcox said. They will want to buy the property for as little as possible, but if an investor or a user buys the property, they might have the ability to pay a little more. Justin Lossner a senior managing director in JLL's Des Moines office said it is unlikely that the property occupied by Wells Fargo in West Des Moines would have ever been sold for near its assessed value. It was a corporately occupied asset and had been for years, said Losner, who with others at JLL listed the property. Going forward, it's not going to be a 425,000 square foot single occupier building which means the value of that is different unless magically an owner user came along and wanted to purchase the whole thing, which is unlikely in the Des Moines market. Then you're looking at this as an investment slash speculative purchase. The traditional costs of tenant improvement packages were taken into consideration when the JLL team determined the property's value, Lossner said also considered were the amount of time it would take to lease the property and what a property owner's expectations would be on their return on investment. Steve Helm, Dallas County's assessor, said it's too soon to know how the sale will affect valuations of other office properties. However, he said he's had a few inquiries from office property owners asking about lowering assessed valuations. Ryan Wiedershtein, owner of WB Realty Corp, uh, Realty Company, which bought the office building, has said the competitive lease rates being offered in the six-story building will attract interest from potential office users. Leasing options for potential tenants will range from 4,000 square feet up to the entire building for a single tenant. We bought the property at a price point that we think can be very competitive in the Class A office market in the western suburbs, Wiederstein said. Losner said he is seeing an uptick in interest in Class A office space from potential leases. Lassees, excuse me. If you're sitting on high-quality Class A product, odds are that you're looking at multiple deals right now, Losner said. If you're sitting on C-quality space, you're probably still pretty cold. Helm said no decisions have been made on whether to try change the valuation of the recently sold West Des Moines office property. If the building remains vacant for a long time, the property's assessment could be lowered, he said. If it is leased quickly, that's another thing. This week's Elbert Files is entitled Addictive Sports Betting, written by Dave Elbert. Sports betting, like cancer rates and bad water, is a growing problem in Iowa. There's a relatively simple solution, limiting advertising, which I'll get to in a minute, but first some Background. Sports betting has a long history, although online betting has been legal only since 2018 when the Supreme Court struck down the 1992 Bradley Act, which had severely limited sports betting at the dawn of the digital age. Iowa, which pioneered modern-day lotteries and riverboat gambling, has four decades of gambling experience and was among the first to embrace legalized sports betting in August of 2019. More recently, Iowa became the first state with a college-level sports betting scandal when more than two dozen athletes at Iowa State University and the University of Iowa were charged last year with illegally placing bets. No one involved looked good. Not the athletes, not their friends and families who shared betting accounts with underage players, not coaches or administrators who failed to warn how easy it was to get caught with modern technology, Not even state police, who defense attorneys allege lied to at least one player. But the problem is larger than Iowa. A recent report on CBS's 60 Minutes focused on how gaming companies use science and technology to target men under the age of 35, leading one addiction therapist to declare this is a public health emergency. With little regulation, the odds are all in favor of the betting companies. Few guardrails exist partly because everything has happened so fast. Plus, beneficiaries include governments that receive a cut of sports bets as taxes. The amount Iowans wagered on sports betting grew from $368 million in fiscal year 2020 to $2.25 billion during 12 months ending June 30, 2023, according to the Iowa Racing and Gaming Commission. Nationally, according to Legal Sports Betting, a trade publication, 300 billion dollars has been gambled since the online gates opened in 2018. The same publication predicted that more than 23 billion dollars would be bet on this year's Super Bowl. A January poll by St. Bonaventure/Siena Research shows how widespread and wide-open sports betting has become. It said that nearly one in five adults are about 50 million people say they have at least one account with an online sportsbook, while roughly 45 million say they have at least one app for betting on a mobile phone. Among those with phone apps, nearly half said they check betting odds at least once a day, with 24% saying they check the odds more than twice a day. 60 Minutes found anecdotal evidence of individuals who gambled away student loans and inheritances. No one really knows how bad the problem is because the bookmakers have all the data and they are not talking, said sixty minutes correspondent John L. Worthheim. There's no federal funding for research, he added. Worthheim noted, however, that the United Kingdom has placed limits on how betting companies advertise. He also interviewed Harry Levant a lawyer who successfully sued tobacco companies and who recently joined two law school professors to wage war against mobile phone gambling addiction. Reporting by Wertheim and others suggest that limiting advertising can slow the industry's mushrooming growth. Hard liquor and tobacco are two other so-called vices that have experienced advertising limits. According to National Public Radio, at the dawn of television in 1948, Hard liquor makers agreed to a self-imposed ban on TV advertising. It lasted until 1996 when local stations began airing ads for spirits. Since 2002, liquor ads have appeared more widely on networks and cable channels under an agreement that imposed restrictions on when commercials can air and whom they can target, not underage viewers. Cigarette advertising was banned from television and radio in 1971, and smokeless tobacco was banned in 1986. Wider bans affecting print, billboards, and other types of media followed and continued into the 21st century. While limited advertising is one answer for addictive sports bettors, implementing it anytime soon in our current political atmosphere will be about as easy as solving Iowa's cancer or bad weather problems. Now from the leader's spotlight, West Des Moines appoints new city attorney deputy city attorney. Greta Truman, who has served as West Des Moines' counsel and assistant city attorney since twenty fourteen, has been appointed city attorney by the city council. Truman, whose appointment was effective december eighteenth, replaces Richard Czinski, who retired in July after twenty two years with the city. In a related move, the city the council also approved the Adding the position of deputy city attorney in the city's legal department, the council appointed Jessica Grove to the position, effective December 18th. Catherine Tong joins Mom's Meals as chief commercial officer. Mom's Meals, a provider of home-delivered meals for beneficiaries of Medicare and Medicaid, has appointed Catherine Tong to the newly created position of chief commercial officer. Kyle Gamble, named Hubble Realty's COO. Kyle Gamble, who joined Hubble Realty Company in 1994 as a real estate broker, has been named the company's chief operating officer. The new position is in addition to Gamble's role as executive vice president, a position he was appointed to in 2021. And Renee Hardman, named Lutheran Services in Iowa president, CEO. Lutheran Services in Iowa has appointed Renee Hardman as its new president and CEO, effective January 23rd, the organization announced. That's all the time we have for today's reading of The Business Record. You've been listening to The Business Record on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. I'm your reader, Scott Sblavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS.